Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast, presented by Zenium HR. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Whether you're an HR professional or a small business leader, each episode of this podcast is designed to bring you the latest in technical HR and leadership at your convenience. More content is available on our website at www.zeniumhr.com. Let's dive into today's topic. Hey, welcome to today's show. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. And today is a very, very special episode. We're going with a more of a business-focused topic today. We invited Pat McCauley, CEO of Bridgewell Agribusiness on the podcast. And the unique thing about this particular episode is that Rick Thomas, who's been on the podcast before, he is a business advisor and a partner at Pilot Wealth Management. He also has a podcast called The Idea Revolution. And so he and I kind of put our heads together. We both want to interview Pat. We had him speak at an event back in November 2017. And we we loved his talk. Uh, He was fantastic on our CEO panel. And so we both wanted to interview him and thought, hey, let's do a simulcasted podcast. So for the purposes of this particular episode, Rick and I share hosting responsibilities. So that's why you'll kind of hear both of us jump in and and play host. And um, you're going to love this episode. Pat has a wealth of knowledge and he put together a seminar on the science behind decision making. So why do we make the decisions we do? And is there a science behind it? So in this episode, really, Pat dives into why thinking like a trader and thinking in bets is really good for decision making. He talks about how bias plays a role in the decision making and so much more. We really only touched the tip of the iceberg on this. And that's why we are putting on a full seminar in Portland, Oregon on June 12th, 2018. Uh, Pat McCauley will be the featured presenter. Uh, It'll be a great breakfast and and networking event as well with other uh, senior business leader type people. So again, June 12th, uh, link to the registrations in the show notes special promo code for this uh, event is also in the show notes and it's exclusive to you as a podcast listener. So I'm going to step out of the way. You're going to really enjoy this episode. Let me know what you think about this episode. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me an email, whatever you want to do. I want to hear if you like these business focused topics. And if you don't like these sort of topics, uh, please do forward them on to uh, other senior leaders within your organization. I'm really trying to obviously have very focused HR topics and things about the workplace, but I also want some really, truly uh, human development-based topics. And I think the science behind decision-making really falls into that category. So it's a little bit more business-focused, but I think you'll really enjoy this and you're gonna get a lot from this. So enjoy the episode. Very cool to be here with Brandon and Pat this morning. Uh, Brandon and I are doing this. We're kind yeah. of an experiment here. We're doing a simul podcast. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see how this it. works. Uh, with uh, uh, mine being the idea revolution and uh, Brandon's, you've got the HR for small business podcast. Yeah. So 
Very cool to be teaming up and doing yeah, this with and you. And excited to have Pat here too. Even more so, yeah. So we've got Pat McCauley, uh, CEO and owner of Bridgewell Agribusiness uh, here in the area, in the Portland area. Uh, welcome, Pat. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on. We had the opportunity to meet Pat a few months ago, actually late last year. Yeah. He was a guest on a panel that we had uh, as part of the uh, Leadership and Economic Summit that Pilot and Zenium has done for a number of years here in the Portland area. And as part of the CEO panel, you participated and, you know, in getting to know uh, the panelists, uh, Pat began to talk about decision science. And right away, I started geeking out because I'm, I'm really curious. First of all, when I meet people that are a lot smarter than me, I pay attention. So <laughs> definitely wanted to learn more, that. learn more about Pat. And uh, rather than listen to me ramble on, tell us, tell us a bit about Bridgewell Agribusiness. What is it you guys do? And then kind of what, what's been your larger career track? How did you get to that place? And what kind of informed this whole uh, topic around decision science? Sure, thanks. Bridgewell Agribusiness is in the business of uh, sales and trading of commodity-based food products. So we trade grains, oils, um, some specialty fruits, tropical products. Um, our business is national and international. We focus primarily on customers that are looking to solve problems. So we tend to focus on products where customers have either historically or currently have issues with getting supply of different commodity products that they need. And our job is to help them figure out how to solve those problems. So we what we end up doing is we, we, we talk about ourselves as supply chain solutions in niche markets. So we tend to manage the overall supply chain. We find the source of the commodity. We manage the supply chain to get it to the customer. We do some value add in getting the customer exactly what they need. So sometimes we're, for example, we might be refining oils. We might be sourcing organic oils. We might be finding specialty grains and then having them floured or milled to a certain specification. What really got me to the business was I was recruited to be the CEO of a different co of a related company about four years ago, and that job kind of morphed into me actually buying the Bridgewell agribusiness from that entity and going going out on our own. I have two partners. Uh, we work in the business together. Um, prior to that, and what really kind of shaped my background, particularly with decision science, right. was my experience at Susquehanna International Group, which is a large Wall Street proprietary trading firm, one of the largest proprietary trading firms in the world at this point. Um, and just to give some perspective, they probably do north of 15% of the average daily volume in derivatives markets. So options and ETF trading, and they do about probably over two percent of the of the listed Nasdaq of the listed NYSE and Nasdaq stock volume on a daily basis as well, and all the capital is just from the partners who started the business wow. in 1987. In, in in terms of dollars that are being traded, give us some sense yeah. just to to put scale to that. Uh, it'll be it, it'll be billions of dollars mm -hmm. in long and short positions on a daily basis that are rolling over. Yeah. Now, not all the positions are long-term positions. It's typically short-term. But I was fortunate. I started there out of business school in 1991. I was hired as a trader. I started in Chicago uh, on the, the floor of the Chicago Board Options Exchange. And there were about 125 people when I started. Uh, I found myself in 1996. They asked me to be the 
COO of the company. At that point, we had about 350 people. I had two different stints as the COO. And after the first one, which was about seven years, we went from 350 to about 1,250 people. Um, and I was responsible for a lot of the growth and development and the hiring uh, and the decision-making around what we were going to do in terms of what businesses we were going to be in and how we were going to staff those right, businesses. Right. In particular to the decision-making, I'm assuming that was kind of what what was that, that, that road that led you to this whole notion around decision science? I was hired originally as a trader, but very quickly as, a, as the company was growing, um, they approached me and they said, would you be interested in actually teaching other people how to trade? Hmm. Um, we were hiring people like crazy and we did not have anybody who was formally working on teaching other people who we were hiring how to make the trading decisions. So I spent with one of the managing directors, one of the founders, I built the curriculum, which they still use today, to teach everybody how to make trading decisions. And it was in that that I realized that I had a knack for teaching. I had a real interest in in decision science, among other things. And I put together that curriculum. So I would say if that, that was probably the seminal time where the things that I do today kind of came out of that, of that experience of being, you know, effectively the teacher of all the people that worked at Susquehanna who were trading investor capital. Interesting. Um, and we're going to talk, I mean, I know we're really going to talk about trading and decision-making and some, I'm anxious to dive into right. that. Yeah. Um, and I want to sort of spoil the party. And yeah. Well, let, let, let's, let's get there quickly. And I, I'm going to mention one more thing for the listeners that if, if this topic is intriguing, stay tuned because you're going to hear some really cool stuff. And uh, at the end, we're going to talk about uh, an opportunity to participate in a seminar that we're going to host between uh, Zenium and Pilot jointly here in Portland in June, in which uh, Pat's going to lead for us. So stay yeah. tuned for that. Yeah. So let, let's get to the goods, as they say. And, and Brandon, why don't you tee us off? Yeah. Here? So I'm really, I mean, fascinated by decision making in general. And obviously, there's a science behind it. Our brains are very complex. And I think there's so much we don't obviously know about how we make decisions and things like that. Your background on trading is fascinating. And you have some, you have component to, to your work is thinking like a trader in terms of making decision, the right decisions. Talk to me about that. I'm kind of unpack that, that thought there. The real premise for trading is trading is really decision-making under uncertainty. So you are forced to make a lot of decisions in a very compressed time period where you get very quick feedback on the decisions that you made. And to the extent that you are risking a significant amount of capital in making those decisions, you get flushed out pretty quickly in terms of whether or not you are a good decision maker or not a good decision maker, or if you have biases or you have you know, other you know, blind spots in your thinking. Um, so trading was always really, really good for teaching people how to, it's a good form for teaching people how to make decisions. Because things are moving so fast. Because things move so quickly. And because in the, and this is true in the real world, which I don't consider trading to be the real world. (laughs) In the real world, it's, it's true because you have to make decisions with incomplete information. So imagine you are, you, you could think of yourself as a manager of a company and you're running a large business and you're trying to make decisions about what to do in the future. Compare that to somebody who's standing in a trading crowd and they're trying to make a decision about whether or not they want to risk millions of dollars by being long or short in any particular uh, security that they're trading at that time. Um, 
And they're going to know within a very short period of time, probably minutes, whether or not their decision was any good. Well, it's funny. I always think back to the book uh, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. It's like kind of the, the thesis behind the book is like you make split-second decisions and sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. And I imagine in the trading world, things are moving so fast and there's high stakes. Quick, bad decision can cost a lot of money. Yeah, it can cost you a, it can cost you a lot of money really quickly. And it's pretty significant. So one story I would tell is the first week that I was uh, at Susquehanna um, and I was fresh out of business school, which of course meant that I thought I knew everything. I was down on the trading floor and we were standing around as a group and we had sort of started to have a conversation about basketball. Now I played basketball in college and, you know, I've always considered myself to be a really good basketball player. And suddenly the conversation as traders will have it gravitate to it, sort of gravitated to to gambling and betting and, and um, you know, b- me being so cocksure about who I was and what I knew, you know, I was, you know, kind of speaking up about, you know, wanting to be involved in the bet. And people were sort of aggressively trying to bet against me. And I realized something didn't feel right. So my instinct was, you know, maybe I'm, I'm sort of leaving out what the bet was, but you know, what, what the... <laughs> You know, maybe I'm not really thinking about this the right way. And I sort of quickly came to realize, mostly through people kind of verbally hitting me over the head, that there was something that I was missing about what was going on in the bed and that I was really just a sucker. And hmm. it was a, it was kind of a – it was a very good moment very early in – like literally in the first week of my career where I was like, okay, well, maybe I don't know as much as I thought and this is a little bit humiliating – and everybody sort of dispersed and walked away. And my manager at the time, who was a phenomenal trader and a, and a great guy, he looked at me and he said, don't ever say anything that you're not willing to bet on. So you start talking. I had started to talk about what I was willing to do and what I thought I could do. And he said, don't say anything you're not willing to bet on. And that's really kind of the essence of what trading is, is if you have opinions about things and you have decisions that you want to execute on or you want to risk capital on, you're really just taking a bet. And you better be really confident that the return that you're expecting to get is compensating you for the risk that you're taking. Um, and too often it happens in business where you know people don't really think about things in that way. So there's a great book that just came out by a woman named Annie Duke, yeah, professional who is a player. professional poker player. Um, I'm fortunate to actually know her personally. Um, she's, a, she's a great person. And she just came out with a book called Thinking in Bets, which really kind of talks about – it's the first book that I've read where it really talks about kind of the trader mentality and how you might apply it to to other things in business. But if you think about it, if trading is really decision-making under uncertainty and you're making decisions about taking risk with incomplete information all the time, trading is really no different than running a business or managing people or thinking about you know what you want to do um, – with your company. So some examples, hiring and firing. That's really, you're making decisions about who to keep and on your team and who not to have on your team with most of the time, not full information. Um, <laughs> yeah. Forecasting and budgeting, capital allocation, uh, new business development. These are all arenas where you are making bets about the future of your business with not full information. And one thing that's really important is if you had full information, there's no decision to make. And I think people forget that very often that you just, if you, if, if you know for sure that something's going to happen, then we don't have to have a discussion yeah. about right. making a decision. It's already done. Right. 
We, we know what the outcome is going to be. But that's where it's really fun is when you're not really sure and you have to make these decisions. But if, and if you do it carefully and you do it thoughtfully uh, and you keep score with mm-hmm. what you do, and we'll talk more about that later, um, you can be a really effective decision maker in in what I would say is thinking more like a trader. Well, that's, that's, that's great. So let's, let's continue to pull that thread. You, you talk about probabilistic thinking in the materials that we've reviewed and, and whatnot. It defi- First of all, define that. What, what does that mean? The first thing I would say is that there's really kind of two key elements to being a decision maker. One is truth-seeking and one is probabilistic thinking. So it's really about, truth-seeking is really about honesty and candor. So honesty with yourself, honesty with the people that work for you, candid feedback that the market gives you. Now, in the in the trading world, the feedback is is as candid as it gets. I right. mean, it is just black and white. You either win or lose. And it's not so easy, and it's much more subtle, obviously, when you're managing people and you're managing a business. But honesty and candor. And then probabilistic thinking is, a, is I think, is really around inquiry and curiosity. So if you are thinking in probabilities, you're thinking about not just what you think is going to happen, but how likely is that to happen? And what are the other things that could happen? And really, how wrong could you be about what it is that you're thinking? Right. So probabilistic thinking is really about framing all of your decisions with what do I expect to happen? And then how likely is that outcome to come to be? And what are all the possible other outcomes? And then from a risk-reward standpoint, I now have a framework for evaluating what I expect to happen and what the risk associated with the outcome, the variance of the outcome is. And that's, I think, applicable to really anything that you do. It's particularly applicable to trading because trading is you know, bound by mathematics to a large degree. So it makes it simpler. But really, if you think about it, anything that you do in business, whether you frame it this way or not, you have some idea of what you expect to happen and you have some sense that what I expect to happen might not happen. And I'll think about maybe other things that could happen, but how rigorously am I doing that? How scientifically am I doing that? And that's really what the basis or the fundamental basis of probabilistic thinking is. And, and I'm curious, for the people that, that have excelled in, in being able to create that, that mental model or that framework that really serves that probabilistic mindset, it seems like there's a qualitative aspect to people that do it well and people that don't do it so well. And, and I'm guessing here, you know, in dealing with the implicit uncertainty that comes with most any decision, there's that emotional component. And d- does the framework of probabilistic thinking help uh, mitigate that emotional component? Or is that just a qualitative aspect that, you know, it's either a virtue that people have that they're able to quiet that or it's or not and they'll never get it? Well, I would say that anyone is capable of getting it. So the first thing I would say is anybody can learn how to think probabilistically, even if you're not a math person. So what I hear a lot of times when I talk to people is, I don't like math, or I was never very good at math, or I'm scared of math. And what I realize mostly through trial and error with people that I've worked with and people that work for me is you can explain to them that, well, there's actually a mathematical component to really anything that you do. If you work in human resources or you work in accounting, obviously it's math. If you work in operations, you work in technology, there, there's a math component to all of those jobs. And I think people get very nervous when they hear the word 
probabilistic because it's like, well, I'm not really sure. I'm not very good at math. I don't know what that really means. I'm not, you know, I'm not, but if you just, if you think about it in terms of almost every decision that you make, whether it's personal or professional, you are basically, and Annie Duke says this in her book is you are, when you make a decision about something to do, you are in some respect betting against all the other possible outcomes that you could have chosen right. or all the other possible versions of what the future might look like or what you might look like in the future. So you're doing this subconsciously. I would encourage people to think about doing it a little bit more rigorously so that you can do it better. So when when we talk about when I when I think about probabilistic thinking and I think about I have some idea of what I expect to happen and then I have some sense of how likely that is to happen. The way I think about that is I'm thinking about kind of confidence intervals around my assessments. So I might think that something is going to happen. I have to have some marker or some confidence interval around how likely that is. So a good example is in the stock market, this happens all the time, is if I want to buy, we'll use Facebook because they're in the news a lot. <laughs> Everybody knows that yeah, Facebook It's very topical right Facebook's, now. Facebook's, <laughs> you, can, you can go on your computer right now and you can see what the, price, the current price of Facebook is. But what you're not seeing or what you can see around that is what's the market for Facebook? What's the bid and what's the ask? Yeah. And how much volume is, is the, in aggregate, is the world willing to buy on the bid or willing to sell on the ask before the price changes? So what that really is in, in, in a very simple sense and a good example is that's a confidence interval. So people think they know what Facebook is worth today based on all the information they have at this particular moment, and here's their confidence interval around it. And it's marked by the width and the size of the market. And that's really what we're talking about doing when we talk about probabilistic thinking is thinking about your decisions in terms of what you expect to happen, what the current price is based on what you know, and then a confidence interval with width and size, how wide and how deep is the market that you're willing to make around it. And obviously, the more confident you are, the tighter you can make your market and the more you might be willing to bet on that outcome. And that, I think that's a, that's a good analogy, I think, for thinking about how you might make business decisions or how I might make business decisions that have nothing to do with trading. What if we take in so much information, we're really confident in what we're thinking about, and then all of a sudden we develop these biases? Like, for example, confirmation bias. I hear this a lot, where you become so confident in a way of thinking, and you all you're doing is going out and seeking more information to support that. Maybe not intentionally, but how does how does the biases play a role in how we make decisions? That's a very good question. I think that's. I don't want to give away too much of what we're going to do in the <laughs> seminar. That's a big, one it's of a big, the it's one funny. of the things that we will cover in the seminar in a fair amount of detail, and I think in ways that people will be able to. Um, personalize is talking about confidence and overconfidence in particular. So without giving away too much when in, in the context of con confidence is, you know, why are weather forecasters really good predictors and doctors are not? You would hope, no offense to weather forecasters, that doctors who have had much more extensive education and, you know, presumably have gone to, uh, you know, have, have demonstrated, you know, high level of aptitude right. for school are going to be smarter than weather forecasters. That's all about in, the information. At least in terms of academics. Yet weather forecasters are really, really good at making predictions relative to 
Now, it turns out weather forecasters are actually not very good predictors of the weather. It's a separate issue, and Nate Silver covers <laughs> yeah. that. Nate Silver, who is- yeah, he's uh, got great work. He's, he does great work. Uh, Signal and Noise is a great book. Nate Silver has sort of kind of blown the doors off the myth that weather forecasts are actually good predictors. They're not. But my point is, is that relative to doctors, they are or historically have been. So why? And the answer is that if you're a weather forecaster, your job depends on your ability to make predictions about what's going to happen with the weather, at least out, hopefully out at least 48 to 72 hours. But the point is, is that you get a lot of feedback. So you make a lot of decisions. You have a lot of modeling tools. You get a lot of feedback. And when you don't do a good job consistently, you get fired or you get replaced because you're in the job. If you're telling people it's going to snow or it's going to rain, take your umbrella and it's really hot and sunny and they're wearing galoshes and it's, you know, they should be wearing sandals. They're not going to be too happy with you and they're going to call the station and you're going to get fired. Whereas if you're a doctor and you go in and you do an examination on Rick and the doctor says, Rick, I think you may have some really exotic disease. It gives you about a 2% chance of survival beyond six months, but I'm not really sure. Let me, let me do some more tests and get back to you. There's no recourse. So they don't keep score and there's no recourse if their decisions are necessarily bad. And that's not a bad thing. It's not, I don't mean that as a value judgment, but the point is, is that they don't have any mechanisms that are set up for them to get really good feedback on their assessments of what might be wrong with Rick when he comes in and says, you know, I, I don't feel good. And, and that's really what, so what you want to do is you want to have your confidence in your assessment of anything match what the actual likelihood of that thing happening is. So someone who's really good, who, someone who has done really good work on this is a gentleman named Phil Tetlock. Um, and he has a book called Super Forecasting. He has a book called uh, The Halo Effect. But um, he's he does, if you go online, you Google his name and you Google a confidence test, he actually has an online test where you can measure your how confident you are with uh, what the actual, you know, how, how good you are sort of measuring your confidence with your actual predictive abilities. And what his research has found, which is really true, is that people are not very good at predicting. And they don't really measure and they don't really care. And we'll get to biases later where they tell a story around that that makes them feel better about themselves. But but his point is that if you want to be really good at forecasting, you want to be really good at predicting, which is really if you want to be really good at probabilistic thinking, you need to be able to match up your level of confidence with your predictive ability. So it's not about you being 100% right all the time. But if you're only 60% right, you better be have a 60% confidence interval around that. And you better prepare for the other 40%. Right. What's the downside? But if you're 60%, if your outcome is 60% to be true and you're 100% sure, you're setting yourself up for making really, really bad decisions. What we've been mainly talking about are are how to prepare for or how to deal with decision making in the moment. What about after the fact? What What are kind of some guidelines in terms of assessing the, the quality of the decision-making or how we want to be, how do you look at that? I think you have to really do two things. One is you have to force yourself and force the people that you work with to make some assessment of how confident they are mm. in, in, what they, in what they're assessing. 
and then you have to keep score. So oftentimes we don't do confidence intervals. We don't keep score. But then we get outcomes regardless of whether or not we do the first two things. Right. And then we tell ourselves a narrative around those outcomes that speaks to, I think, on a lot of levels, the biases that people are subjected to. Let, let's do an example. So let's talk about financial modeling. Every company does financial modeling. I do it all the time. Right. I literally do it on a daily basis. I'm trying to predict what our cash flow and our cash position is going to be on a daily basis. So so I, I, I'm kind of fully engaged in it. But people do financial modeling all the time. So they do financial modeling around what they expect salespeople to generate, what they expect their company to do in profitability on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, depending on the, or yearly basis, depending on their business. We, we're really just in the business of doing predictions. And we just talked about the fact that we're not particularly good or wired to be good at doing predictions. So if we take financial modeling as the example, what what a model really is, is a model is a, is a representation of what you expect the world to look like or hope the world's going to look like, yeah. right? So what do you do when you create a model? You come up with a baseline based on a bunch of assumptions. So any model that you create is really only as good as the assumptions that you make around that model. And what we don't do a lot of times is we don't rigorously test our assumptions we don't build confidence intervals around our assumptions. We don't think about how likely our assumptions are to be wrong until ex post we see what the outcome is. So if we're going to be really good at making decisions and doing predictions around things in the context of modeling, we better re be really good at before we come up with what the model looks like is rigorously evaluating our assumptions so we know where our model could break down, and we have an appropriate level of confidence in our model. It doesn't mean that we're going to walk out the door and say, I'm 100% sure that what I have on this paper is going to happen, but I want to make sure that my confidence in what's going to happen is matches up with what's on the paper. Right. And that's really, really difficult to do because we're not, we're not in the business of making assumptions like or, or testing our assumptions we don't really have a good understanding overall of risk or how to measure risk or how to evaluate risk. We don't really do a lot of post hoc analysis over what happens. We look at the outcome, but we don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about what the outcome, you know, how likely that outcome was to happen before it actually happens, right? right. We're much more reactive when we could be a lot more proactive in making those kind of decisions. Um, and you brought up something which we're going to now kind of get into is is biases. So when you brought up the word emotion, yeah. a lot of times what emotion really talks to is the biases that we all have. And when I say biases, what I mean is we are all subject to, as human beings, our brains are not hardwired to make rational, sound, fundamentally objective decisions. We get fooled all the time by our own intelligence. And that's really what biases talk about. So biases are not about, they're not value judgments. They are things that even people who are really, really good at making decisions are subject to these biases all the time. And even if you're aware of them, you're always subject to them. So it's not a, 
you know, I've, I've gone through, you know, I've gone through, you know, instead of AA, I've gone through BA, right? Bias, you know, anonymous, and now I'm cured. I've done the 12-step <laughs> program. There, there is no cure for it. I think what you can hope for at best is to have a, a really functioning awareness of what these biases are. And then you can be really, really successful uh, at, at consistently making really good decisions. I'm aware of it all the time. I spend a lot of time thinking about it. And I make, I ma- I make mistakes all the time. I'm, I, you know, I get clouded by – my judgment gets clouded all the time in very small and subtle ways, probably a lot less than maybe other people would, but clouded nonetheless. Something bringing science into this discussion makes so much sense is because you hypothesize, you test that hypothesis, and then you sort of recap and you look at, hey, did it go exactly the way we thought? And then objective analysis. Objective analysis. And I don't think we do that in decision making. We don't. And that's one of sort of that, that that's one of the big issues that I think if you and again, this is always, you know, post hoc, but when you think about, you know, why did why did we not hit our budget last month? Or, you know, why did we not make the revenue we thought we were going to make last year? Or why didn't the salesperson who we hired work out the way we thought they were going to work out when we hired them? And the the answer a lot of times is that it is not that we were wrong or we got bad luck. It has a lot more to do with maybe we weren't really focused on the right things up front. Maybe we made assumptions that we shouldn't have made but probably as much or, or as much as that is we were probably just too confident in what we thought going in and that's 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 a big problem right because if you have people working for you and you say here's your budget i expect you to hit your budget well sometimes people hit their budget and sometimes they blow through their budget right sometimes they miss their budget there's variance there and you need to understand uh you need to have an, a, a sense of how confident you are in what you originally thought the budget should be, which means you got to really stress test your assumptions around the model that you give somebody. Because that's really just giving them a model and saying, here's what I expect you to do and why. But without speaking to how much variance there is around that or what risks there are that may or may not be in the person's control, you're you're setting them you're setting them up for either failure or you're setting them up for an interpretation post hoc that is probably biased. For those of you listening, you're probably getting a sense of how much meat is that there is on this bone. And I mean, I, I could go for a lot longer, but I, I think we're, we're probably going to summarize it at this point. But definitely, uh, let, let's talk about uh, the event that we're having on June 12th. So uh, we, Pat, we're going to have you come in and, and do a kind of a half morning seminar on taking a deeper dive on unpacking some of these topics as well as that you've talked about today, as well as a few others. And, and along with some other people uh, uh, in the room to go through maybe some live fire examples. Is there anything else you'd, you'd want to tease up on that seminar at this point? Well, there's a lot, there's a lot to tease up. I mean, we talked about um, overconfidence, there are a number of other biases. You know, Warren Buffett is quoted as saying, "We interpret all information, so our prior conclusions remain intact." <laughs> and I think that's a really good way of summing up a lot of the biases. So some of the things that we will talk about in a fair amount of detail and give some tools and skills uh, that people can take away 
to again to to be aware of these biases it's overconfidence it's confirmation bias which is really about looking for information that confirms what we might already believe um, there are a number of self-serving biases that we'll talk about self-serving biases are really around stories that we tell ourselves so we can preserve our beliefs and our self-esteem or what we thought was true there are hindsight bias we'll talk about hindsight bias which is really you know, we view the outcome and then we construct a story around what we believe happened or why it happened. You know, the famous quote is, I knew it all along. Yeah, right. You know, that's that's really what hindsight bias talks about. There are some other effects too, like the Lake Wobegon effect, which is this uh, Garrison Keeler, who is a writer and satirist and is a radio personality. He he created this fictitious town in Minnesota called Lake Wobegon where everybody who lives there is above average. It's um, not possible. The sense is, you know, what it's this, uh, it's this, you know, it's this mythical sort of place that everybody should, you know, every comp, every town should strive to be like Lake Wobegon, right. and everybody's above average. But let me just throw out a couple of quick statistics, which I think this is why it's called the Lake Wobegon effect. Is twenty five percent of all employees think they're in the top one percent of performance. Hmm. Which the math, that can't the math doesn't work out. Though. Yeah, eighty percent, eighty percent, and th- these are all studies that have been done. So I'm just kind of throwing right. out the summaries. Eighty percent of school children rate themselves above average in leadership. So eighty percent of the kids think they're in the top fifty percent. Wow. Um, this one is my favorite one. Ninety-four uh, percent of academics rate themselves above average relative to their peers. <laughs> That's um, unreal. Yeah, in terms of, uh, I believe it's in terms of research, you know, research and and uh, and the and the work that they produce. And here's another interesting one. Just again, just as a teaser, is you know, 75 percent of employees score themselves higher than their peers and their managers do, than their managers score them on the same, you know, in evaluations. So when you do like 180, 360 kind of peer reviews, so when you think about sort of all these things going on, and you say. And and here's the problem when you're a manager is I can say, okay, I'm a manager. I'm aware of this stuff and I'm aware of it as anybody. And I know that I'm still subjected to it. So I worry about people who don't think about it as much as I do. But then consider consider this on top of it is you have a whole bunch of people that work for you and they don't know anything about this or they don't pay attention to it or you don't evaluate them on it or you're not teaching them it. So they are going to be really, really subject to these biases. Right. And that's really what I think, you know, if I was going to say, what's there a summary takeaway that we'd hope is I would hope that people would leave and say, I have an appreciation for what these are. And I have some tools that can help me at least do a better job of managing myself and helping to manage the people that work for me. Well, we will definitely include more information uh, along with the podcast post on uh, how to how to uh, sign up for the the workshop. It's pretty limited, sixty spots. Yeah, about sixty spots. Yeah. So, yeah. podcast listeners really get an exclusive look at this definitely, event firsthand. Definitely. So, more more information to come. Definitely look for that. Pat, this is awesome as always. Always enjoy diving into this, and look forward to doing this more on the twelfth. Uh, thanks, Brandon. This hey, was welcome. really cool doing this. Uh, let's well, thank you guys. Again. I really appreciate you doing this. And it's great to get the word out on decision making. Very cool. We'll do it again. Thanks, Pat. Rick. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. Subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, 
be sure to check out our blog at www.zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc. For more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com.